Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerbinsville Christian Church. And uh, we're in the midst of a survey through the Old Testament. We're up to the books of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles in our series. We've entitled this section, Israel's Kings and Prophets, and we're in lesson six today. So when we've looked at the first five lessons, they were, of course, covering the reign of King Solomon. And now, as of last week, King Solomon has died, and now his son Rehoboam has become king. But I want you to remember that there was a prophecy given to Solomon because he turned away from the Lord and went after foreign gods because of his wives. And that is that the kingdom would be torn away from his house and ten tribes would be given to someone else, while two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would remain with the house of David. And so we're going to see that today. So we're entitling today's lessons, The Kingdom Divides. And so we're going to focus on chapter 12, verses, verse 1, through chapter 14, verse 31 in 1 Kings, as well as in chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 16 in Second Chronicles. And again, because of the uh, amount of material that we're going to go through, we're not going to read uh, these scriptures unless we need to as we go through our study, uh, but we are going to do a survey through this. So let's start off, first of all, with the division of the kingdom. And we're going to see that in chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, and as well as in chapter 10, verses 1 to 19 of Second Chronicles. So here's what happens. Remember, there is an, an antagonist who is on the scene, who has fled because Solomon tried to kill him. He was given a prophecy by a prophet named Ahijah, and that is that God would take ten tribes and give it to him, and he would become the king of the northern tribes, and that's Jeroboam. So remember that in your background, in your thinking as we go through this series because now we're going to see the prophecy being fulfilled. All right, so when you come to the beginning of this narrative, especially when we look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, when Rehoboam was made king, <coughs> Jeroboam and Israel came to speak with him. So when Rehoboam was made king over Israel, and that happened in Shechem, which was in the northern tribes, Jeroboam and the elders of Israel, that is the northern tribes, came to speak with Rehoboam. They had something they wanted to talk with him about. Now here's what they did. They, they pointed out how Solomon had placed a heavy burden upon them as they served him. Now this is not surprising. If you remember when we talked about King Solomon's reign, his daily provision was enormous of what he required to basically serve his kingdom, what was required by him in his lavish lifestyle, required by him in feeding of his servants. And you think about the forced labor and all of that. That was really required a lot from the people of Israel. And that was in keeping with the prophecy that the prophet Samuel gave in 1 Samuel, remember when Israel, the tribes of Israel, wanted a king and they wanted Samuel to give them a king, the Lord warned them 
that if they got a king, the king would put burdens upon them and make their sons, their servants, their maidservants, and take from their stuff. And, and the Lord warned them that this is what was going to happen when they had a king. And of course, the extreme of that was happening with King Solomon. Now, obviously, the people of the northern tribes are really feeling it. And so they're saying to Rehoboam, you know what? This is how your dad treated us. We want something different. And in fact, they were asking for really the load to be lightened. Well, the text tells you that Rehoboam told him he needed three days to consider their words. So he is at least wise enough to know not to give them a response right then. He, he says, come back in three days, I'll give you my response. Now what follows in the text is that Rehoboam obviously is wise enough to consider the advice of others. So Solomon's elders, that is the elders who served King Solomon, encouraged the king to be a servant to the people and they will serve him. Basically, they're saying to him, okay, look, you need to lighten up on the load. Don't live for yourself. You be a servant to the people and they're going to follow you, which is pretty good advice. Don't live for yourself. Live for them. They'll follow you. Now, Rehoboam rejected their advice and accepted the advice of his friends who grew up with him. Isn't that what we normally do? You know, we don't necessarily listen to the words of wisdom, but we listen to those who are close around us. And he had around him certain individuals who grew up with him. Now, let me remind you, when we talk about growing up with him, Rehoboam isn't 17, year old, 17 years old at this time. He's actually 40. He's 40 years old at this point. But he's listening to those who are around him, his friends. And they kind of, uh, they advised Rehoboam to increase their burden more than the one from Solomon. Wow. All right. So listen, think about this, folks. This is, you got people who are coming. Wow, the burden's too heavy. Lighten up. We'll serve you. But his friends are saying, no, don't lighten up. You tell them you're going to increase it even more. All right, we're looking at a possible problem here, aren't we? Well, and that's exactly what happened. So when Jeroboam and the leaders returned, Rehoboam spoke harshly to them. So he treated them rather poorly and, of course, told them what his friends had advised, that is, as his own words, and things didn't go well. And, of course, they wouldn't go well. Here's people who are coming to you saying, lighten up. Will you lighten up from the burden that your dad gave? And you're coming to them and saying, first of all, you're treating them like garbage. Number two, you're coming to them and you're saying, I'm going to increase it even more. And you, I don't know what kind of reaction you would expect. Well, the king did not listen to the people it says, which was in accordance with the prophecy. So basically, the text is telling you that all of this is taking place and the king's reaction were all in accordance with the Lord's will. Remember, the Lord had said 
that he was going to tear apart the kingdom, he was going to divide the kingdom, and he, but he wasn't going to do it in Solomon's time, he was going to do it in his son's time, which is Rehoboam. And that's exactly what's going on here. Okay, That's exactly what's going on here. And the text wants you to make sure that what's happening now was in accordance with the prophecy and accordance with God's will. So all of this was to bring about the fulfillment of Ahijah's prophecy to Jeroboam. Remember, the prophecy to Jeroboam was that God was going to divide the kingdom and give Jeroboam ten tribes, and he would be king over them. So this is all in accordance with that prophecy. So here's what happens. The northern tribes restated the old accusation that they did not have a share in David. Now why do I say this is an old accusation? Well, think back. Remember when David, we looked at this, in 2 Samuel, when David was on the run from Absalom. And, of course, Absalom is defeated by the forces of Joab. Then, when David is returning from his exile back to the Jerusalem, the men of Judah and Benjamin are there to meet him and to bring him back. But the northern tribes come as well, and they're upset because they have not been invited to bring back the king to Jerusalem. And their, their, really their, their protest was, is we don't have a share in King David. We're kind of like the red-headed stepchildren of Israel. We don't have a share in what's going on here. And if you remember, there was a guy who rose up from them who, who tried to rally the ten tribes to rebel against David and of course Joab was brought in and he of course took care of that rebel but the old accusation is still there and here it comes it reemerges we don't have a share in the house of David so they bring that up so guess what happens the kingdom divides they rebelled against Rehoboam and they stoned an emissary from the king so they rebelled, they left, went back to their own tents. The king decides to send someone, an official from his court to go visit them to, to try to make things work or whatever. Well, what they do is they stone him, that, which basically means, folks, they killed him. Their rebellion is such that they're done with the king. Don't come, you know, and so they kill this emissary. Well, the king then, it says, fled to Jerusalem. So he's getting out of there. He's hightailing them. Remember, he's in Shechem when this is happening. And the northern tribes made Jeroboam their king. So the northern tribes make Jeroboam their king. So the prophecy here from Ahijah is being fulfilled. The prophecy is being fulfilled, folks. Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern tribes. And so now we see what is going to be very evident through the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings up until the time of the Babylonian captivity that there is now a northern kingdom, which is the northern ten tribes, which will ultimately be called Samaria, the kingdom called Samaria, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, which are the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. 
And of course, the southern kingdom is ruled by someone who sits on the throne of David, an heir of David, and the northern kingdom we're going to see is going to go through a series of kingdoms, kings who basically, they're all wicked, they're all evil, and the roots of it are right here with this one guy called Jeroboam. Now, I want you to remember with me, because remember last week when we looked at the whole lesson of Jeroboam, when Ahijah gave him the prophecy and said that he would be king, the Lord said, if you walk in the ways of my servant David, I will establish your house. Basically saying, I will make you a dynasty if you walk in my ways. Now that's very important. You need to remember that. Because what happens in Jeroboam's life is going to come out in the passages that we're looking at today, and uh, we're going to see the outcome of that. So now here's what happens. Of course, when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he gathered the men of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so he's got a rebellion on his hand. And how do kings handle rebellions? Well, they muster their armies. Now the problem is he doesn't have the ten tribes anymore in the north, to muster, he has only two tribes, which are Judah and Benjamin. So he musters the men of Judah and Benjamin to go put down the rebellion. So with 180,000 men, that's how many men that were between the two tribes, 180,000 men, he sought to restore the kingdom to himself. So he's mustering 180,000 men to march them up to fight against the ten tribes, because he's wanting to restore the kingdom to what it was. The 12 tribes is one kingdom. Now, this is interesting what happens next. The Lord sent a prophet to tell Rehoboam not to attack Israel because it was his will. So as they're mustering all this men, if you look at the passage very clearly, he says that God raised up a prophet, tells you the name of the prophet. The prophet then comes and says, look, you're not going to go fight your brothers. You're not going to go fight your brothers. This is of me. This is of me. God is making it very clear that the division is from him. And we know that. Why do we know that? Because that's what the Lord said would happen. Told that to Jeroboam, that he would make him a king, but he also told that to Solomon, and it was because of Solomon's sin. And so we see that here in this passage. Now, now we move on to chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 14, verse 20, and we're going to focus on a northern king. Now, here, let me explain something to you. When you look at the two books, well, the two sets of books, when you look at First and Second Kings and when you look at Second Chronicles, you're going to see that the record focuses on basically on different kingdoms. So when you look at 1st and 2nd Kings, it's going to refer to both the northern and southern kingdoms. So it's going to refer to the northern kings, which, by the way, we're going to see that they were evil. And it also focuses on the southern kingdom, which, of course, is a mixture of good kings and bad kings. When you come to Chronicles, its focus is on the lineage or the house of David. So it only focuses on on the house of David. 
So when you come to 1 Kings, it's going to talk about Jeroboam. Chronicles is not. So here's what we see happening. When we come to verse 25, this is very interesting. Here's a guy who's been told that he will become king, that God will give him the ten tribes, and basically if you walk in my ways, I will establish your kingdom. Now, of course, here's what happens. Ten tribes taken out of the kingdom, given to Jeroboam, he now becomes king. You would think he would say, oh, wow, look at what God did. Let's do with the rest of what he said so I can, my kingdom can last forever. That's not what he does. When you come to verse 25, Jeroboam told himself that the kingdom may return to the house of David. What's going on here? Jeroboam is having some doubts. Even though God made it very clear that the kingdom would be established under him and that if he walked in the ways of his servant David, he would be, there would not be anyone lacking in his house who would be king. Jeroboam has convinced himself now, and we do that. We sometimes set aside faith in the God that we should be following, and we think in our own terms. He begins to think, okay, you know what? I've got these ten tribes, but they may go back to the house of David. And he has a reason why he thinks they'll go back to the house of David. If the people went to sacrifice to the Lord in Jerusalem, they will return to the Lord. Isn't that interesting now? In Jeroboam's thinking, he's saying, you know, we are to go to the temple to make our sacrifices, to go to the feast. That's where we're supposed to go. If the northern tribes, the, the Jews there, would go back to Jerusalem to make these sacrifices, to be there, they're going to turn back to the Lord, which is going to create a problem because then what they'll do is, is they'll ultimately reject me and go back to the house of David. You see how his thinking is going here? So he decides something here. So Jeroboam made two golden calves. I don't think this is... I don't think this just happened. I think he put some thought into this. Because listen to what he says. He tells them he made two golden calves and told the people it was too much to visit Jerusalem. Basically, he says he makes these two golden calves. We'll explain a little bit more about them here in a moment. And he says, look, guys, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really a trouble. It's really a burden for you to travel to Jerusalem to make sacrifices to the Lord God. So he makes these two golden calves. Now here's what he says. He told the people that they were the gods. Notice he says something here. The gods which brought them out of Egypt. All right, let's stop for a moment. I think it's very significant here. Golden calves claiming that they brought them out of Egypt. Does that remind you of something? Well, it should. It should remind you of what took place at Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, when Moses was up on the mountain for a period of time, he wasn't coming down, he was meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments, the people then forced Aaron to mold them a calf, 
And it was presented to them as this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. You see what Jeroboam is doing here? And of course, the Israelites would be ready to do that. Because why? They would be, they would have a bent towards worshiping foreign gods here. So he establishes these two golden calves as what he should do. So he put one golden calf in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now again, this is pretty smart. He's placing one to the far north, one to the south in Bethel. Why would he put one in Dan? Well, if you remember from the book of Judges, there was an idol with the Levite family serving as their priests to this idol where people would go and worship up in Dan, remember? And so, natural place to put the golden calf. Then as well, they put one in Bethel. Now, this became, it says, the text says, this became a sin for the northern tribes as the people went to worship the idols. So it has the, really, it has the effect that Jeroboam wants. He doesn't want the people going to Jerusalem to worshiping the Lord there. They would turn to the Lord. They would return back to the house of David. So what does he do? He establishes these two idols. And of course, the people are ready to embrace that. And guess what? They're led into sin. They sin against the Lord by rejecting him and chasing after idols. And here's what happens. Jeroboam didn't just set up two. This is smart. I mean, this guy, he's trying to get them away from worshiping the God of Yahweh. What does he do? He, he made shrines on every high place as well as priests who were not Levites. And it says priests of every class. So it wasn't just an elitist group that he made. He made priests of everyone. But the interesting thing is, is they weren't Levites. Why? Because the Levites served the Lord. So he's making priests of anybody and everybody on these high places to facilitate the ten tribes turning away from Yahweh. So, now, remember, there are feasts in Jerusalem that the Jews were told to come. The Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so now what happens is Jeroboam institutes feasts that parallel the feasts in Jerusalem. So again, he can't be having the folks go down to Jerusalem for these other feasts that are instituted by the Lord in the law. Rather, now, he institutes his own feast at the same time to keep the people in the northern kingdom and keep them from going down to Jerusalem. I mean, he spent some time thinking about this, folks, and he's instituting a whole system to control the people. Well, here's what happens. Obviously, this is not going to please the Lord. So the Lord sent a man of God from Judah to Jeroboam in Bethel. A man of God who came from Judah to Jeroboam in Bethel. And so this prophet shows up, and as they would do, he prophesied against the altar in Bethel about a child, so he's given a prophecy, who will be called Josiah. 
So when he comes, he, he says, there's going to be a child who is born whose name is Josiah. He would sacrifice the priests, that is, kill the priests, and destroy the high places, and the high places, and burn men's bones on this altar. So he's talking about, in the future, there's going to be a child named Josiah. This Josiah is going to come. He's going to kill all of these priests. He's going to destroy all of these high places. And he's going to commit the greatest sacrilege of all, no matter what the religion is, burn men's bones on this altar. That's pretty interesting prophecy, right? He said the altar would split apart as a sign that these things will take place. So he gives them a sign. This is going to happen in the future, but he gives them a sign right now that this is going to take place. What's going to take place? This altar is going to split and the ashes are going to spill out. Well, you can see this is not the kind of thing that Jeroboam wants the people to hear because he's instituted this system of religion to control the people, to keep them in the north, not go down to Jerusalem to worship the true God, so guess what happens? When Jeroboam heard the prophet's words, he stretched out his hand and called for his arrest. You kind of picture it. It's kind of like he's, he hears it, he stands up, he stretches out his hand to point at the guy probably to have him arrested. Now, here's what happens that is amazing. When he stretched out his hand, it withered. And he could not draw it back. Basically, it atrophied. It withered to the point that he had no control over it anymore, that he could not draw his hand back. Whoa! That, my friends, is something supernatural. And at that very same moment, the altar then split apart and the ashes poured out according to the words of the prophet. Uh, let me just stop for a moment. Do you think anybody's moving to arrest this prophet now? <laughs> Probably not, when the king's own hand is atrophied to the point that he's withered, he can't even draw it back to himself. This is obviously the Lord God doing this. So Jeroboam then asked the prophet to pray for him, and he interceded for the king's hand. So he's asking, he's probably begging the, the prophet, pray for his hand. Prophet does that. Of course, God heals the king's hand immediately. But let's just stop for a moment. I think you would recognize that you're not going to mess with this prophet knowing that he, God is watching over him, right? Now, this is interesting. Now, you, you wonder why is this happening? Well, it would probably be in accordance with what's going on. Jeroboam recognizes, okay, this is not just any guy coming and saying this. This is the prophet of God. So he asked the prophet to stay with him, but the prophet stated that it had been forbidden. Basically, the prophet had been told that he was not to stay there. He was to leave immediately, go back where he came from, not even to eat or drink. He had been forbidden by the Lord. So then the story has really... It's always been amazing to me. It's kind of like a weird twist here. The story then moves in chapter 14 to telling us about an old prophet of the Lord. 
So an old prophet of the Lord who lived in Bethel tricked the prophet into staying with him. So there's this old prophet that hears about what happened, and he goes and he looks for this prophet who is on his journey, and he tricks him by saying he's got a prophecy from the Lord that he was to come back and stay with him and have dinner. And of course he tricked him into doing this. So while they were sitting at the table, the old prophet prophesied against the prophet from Judah. So while they're sitting at the table, the Spirit moves this old prophet to prophesy, you know, because you have been disobedient to what you were commanded to do, you will die. This is an amazing story. Now again, it's a narrative. So because he did not return to Judah in obedience, he would die and not be buried with his fathers. Now this is very important for you and I to understand. It was a significant thing to the Jews in that day that they would be buried in the tomb of their fathers. Typically it would be on the inheritance that they had. And it was really the thing that you wanted to have happen, that when you died, you were buried in the tomb of your fathers. Now, the prophecy here is, look, because you were disobedient to the Lord, you're going to die, and you are not going to be buried back in Judah in the tomb of your fathers. That would be a blow. So when the prophet departed, which is he left immediately, he was attacked by a lion and killed on the road. So as soon as he leaves, on the donkey, he's attacked by this lion and killed on the road. But the lion doesn't eat him. You would think that the lion would eat him. It doesn't. It says that the old prophet came upon him. There was the lion standing over the corpse of this prophet who had been disobedient. The old prophet found his body and had him buried in Bethel. So he finds his body, has him buried in Bethel there. We're going to find out later that he's buried close by to this altar where these golden, golden calf is. He also stated that he wanted his bones buried with this prophet. So he left instructions that when he was to die, he wanted to be buried alongside of where this prophet had been buried as well. Now, we're going to find out the significance of this prophecy and why he did that at the very end of our study when we come to a king whose name is, are you ready for this, Josiah. And remember, the prophecy of the first prophet who is now dead was is that there would be a child named Hosea who would do these things here in Bethel. So the writer then records that Jeroboam did not turn from his evil, but continued with his idolatry. This is very interesting. You see very clearly here that God is giving the warning this is going to take place. I mean, the guy's had his hand atrophied, so it's not like he hasn't seen that God has been real. Let's stop for a moment. He already knows God is real. How does he know that? God gave him the ten tribes to become king. So here he is, God sends a messenger, pronounces judgment, he says, well, arrest that guy before he can say that, his hand withers, 
God then heals it through the prayers of the prophet. He knows that God is real, but guess what? It doesn't stop him from doing what's wrong. He did not turn evil. And so you see, we saw it first with Solomon, we see it now with Jeroboam, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is a statement we're going to see repeated over and over by the kings who were bad, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord because why? They continue in their adultery. Now, we come then to, of course, chapter 14, and we see really the end of Jeroboam's life and something that happens here that's pretty significant. So Jeroboam's son, Ahijah, became sick and the king sent his wife in disguise to the prophet Ahijah. Now, isn't it interesting that Jeroboam has a son and he names his son after the prophet who gave him the prophecy concerning his becoming king? Remember, they gave names because of significant things that were happening in their lives. So maybe it was his way of honoring the prophet who prophesied that he would be king, but he names his son Ahijah. But Ahijah became sick. And of course, the king wants to know what's going to happen, and the only person that he can trust to give him the true story is who? Another prophet, a prophet of the Lord, the prophet who told him he would be king. But he wants to do it on the crafty side, so he sends his wife in disguise. Now, here's the amazing thing. The text tells us that the Lord forewarned Ahijah that the wife was coming in disguise and told him what to say. <laughs> this is where you've got to wonder, why in the world would he send somebody in disguise? Because God would obviously see through that. But you don't think that way when you're not really truly following the Lord. But the Lord told Ahijah, here this woman's coming, this is what I want you to tell her. So Ahijah, the prophet, confronted her and told her to tell Jeroboam the word of the Lord. So he basically exposes who she is and says, hey, I want you to go back to your husband. This is what God says. This is what the Lord says. So the Lord stated that he had made Jeroboam king, but he went went and worshipped other gods. Well, basically the Lord's saying, look, I did what I said I was going to do. I was going to make him king, but instead of doing what I said and following in the steps of my servant David, what does he do? He goes and worships other gods. He draws the people to worship other gods. He turns away from me. And the Lord stated that he will bring disaster under Jeroboam's house and every male will be killed. And to illustrate the abrupt point of that, he says the dogs will eat their bodies and those that the dogs do not eat, the birds of the air will feast on them. That's pretty much a severe judgment here, folks. Remember what he said to them? Remember what the prophet had said to Jeroboam when he anointed him to be king? He said that if you followed after the ways of my servant David, your kingdom would be established. Well, the Lord is coming now saying, look, because you chased after other gods, your household is not going to be established and every male will be killed, will die. So here's what happens next, folks. 
The moment the wife goes back, the moment the wife returns to the city, the child will die. So he basically says, the moment you turn, get back, the child's going to die. Pretty harsh words, so let's continue on. He also points out to Jeroboam through the word that was given to the wife that the Lord will raise up a king who will kill the house of Jeroboam. He's going to raise up another king who will kill the house of Jeroboam. Just realize that. And the Lord, and see, just so you know, this is not just Jeroboam's problem. This is the northern tribe's problem. The Lord pronounces a judgment that basically forecasts, that prophesies the doom of Israel. That is, the kingdom of Samaria. The Lord will also give up Israel and uproot her because of Jeroboam's sin. When you read this, you realize what he's talking about. He's basically saying the destruction of the northern kingdom is coming. And he's going to uproot her. Which is that? What does that mean? He's going to bring them into exile. And we know that that will take place later. And we will see that when we get into 2 Kings. When the Assyrians come and destroy Samaria and carry them away, the ten tribes, into slavery, into exile. God is telling them this is going to happen. Why did it happen? Because of the sin of Jeroboam in leading the northern kingdom away from the Lord to worship these idols. Now, of course, when the wife returned to the city, the child died as the Lord had stated. So guess what? When the woman gets back, as soon as she gets back to the city, the child died as the Lord had stated. Now, it goes on and tells us something interesting. Jeroboam reigned 22 years as king, and his son Nadab assumed his throne. So obviously the prophecy wasn't fulfilled necessarily in Jeroboam's time, but I guess it was. His son, his child, died, but he had other children, and we're going to see the fulfillment of that later on as we move along in our study. So then now we come to verse 21 of chapter 14 through verse 31, and we're also going to come to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 5 through chapter 12, verse 16. And we turn back to the southern kingdom now, which is Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam was 41 years old and reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. So he became king. I said 40, but it was 41. He became king at 41 and reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. Now, I want to remind you, this is a good note to realize. Remember, Solomon, when he died, it said that he reigned 40 years. So when Solomon, his father, became king, Rehoboam would have been one years old. One year old. So he would have been raised, seeing God doing the amazing things, and hearing his father tell of the visions of the Lord in his dreams, but would also have been witness to Solomon turning away from the Lord, all of that before he became king himself. And when he becomes king, he reigned 17 years. So you realize real quickly here that 
Rehoboam actually dies before Jeroboam did. And it says, because of Rehoboam's reign, that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord as they built high places and pillars. Pillars, what do you mean by pillars, George? Well, pillars to the Canaanite god, Ashtaroth, a fertility god. Judah also practiced the sins of the nations that the Lord had cast out before them. So guess what, folks? They go back to the pagan gods that they were ensnared with during the time of the judges. Of all of the peoples that they had cast out, they go back to worshiping these gods. Judah does this under the reign of Rehoboam. Why? Because his heart was not where it should be as well. It also tells us in the text that Jeroboam fortified the cities throughout Judah with troops and storehouses. Why is he fortifying the cities? Well, we're going to see here that now that there's a rebellion, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are now enemies. They're enemies. So here's what happens, though. It's very interesting. Because Jeroboam is leading this rebellion, he's establishing his kingdom, he's setting up a whole new false religious system that parallels the system that is established by Yahweh in Jerusalem. The Levites in Israel, that is the northern kingdom, took their stand with the Lord and came to Judah. So all of the Levites who were interspersed among the tribes in the north, they took their stand with the Lord and they returned back to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to Judah. It's not just the Levites who leave. The people who feared the Lord came to Judah as well and strengthened Rehoboam. So those who were fearing the Lord in the northern kingdom because of their turning away and worshiping after these idols and worshiping after the Canaanite gods and these high places and so forth, they then leave the northern kingdom and they too come back to the southern kingdom. So you see the godly making an exodus from the northern kingdom and going back to Judah and they strengthened Rehoboam's kingdom. The text then goes on and tells us, this is amazing, but he, at least he didn't follow exactly in his father's footsteps. Remember, his father Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. It says that Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines and with 28 sons and 60 daughters. Wow. He appointed his son Abijah as chief, as the prominent son, in order to make him his successor as king. Now, it's interesting. Remember, God said that if they turned away from the Lord, all the way back, even back when Moses was telling them as they were getting ready to walk into the land, we see this in Deuteronomy, God would raise up an oppressor to oppress them. We saw that throughout the book of Judges. When they turned away from the Lord and worshipped the gods of the nations around them that the Lord had driven out, he would raise up an oppressor. Well, he's doing that here again. Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem and took away its treasures. He took away the treasures from the temple, that is, all of the things that were dedicated to the Lord from the time of Saul and David and Solomon, and the treasures of all of the kingdoms he took away 
the treasures. Where would he take them? Back to Egypt, their booty, their loot. Now, because the golden shields, remember Solomon had made these golden shields? Because the golden shields were taken, Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them. But it also says now that Rehoboam humbled himself before the Lord and the Lord's wrath was turned away from him and Jerusalem. So he humbled himself. Now, that doesn't mean he turned back to the Lord completely, but he humbled himself before the Lord and the, and the attack of the Egyptians was turned away. But let's be honest, the damage has been done. So we get to the end of Rehoboam's section in both in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and we see that the writer and the chronicler lists where the reign of Rehoboam is recorded. So it lists all of the books where the reign is recorded. It also states that there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam during their reigns, during the reigns of these kings. It then says that Rehoboam died and was buried with his fathers in Jerusalem. So he was buried with his fathers. Who would they be? David and Solomon. What? In their tomb. In Jerusalem. It then says, now this is where you're going to find a contrast between the two books. Rehoboam's son, Ahijah, which is what Chronicles would say, or Ahijam, which is what 1 Kings says, they're both the same person, became king as his successor. They became king. Now, that brings us to the end of Lesson 6. So next week, when we begin in Lesson 7, we're going to move forward with the survey, and we're going to see the, the successor to Jeroboam, and we're also going to see Ahijah, and we're going to see what's going on with them as the text is going along in the story, in the narrative, to tell us what's happening here. But what we're seeing now is a moving away from the faith that was established by Moses and Joshua and reaffirmed by Samuel and David to being at first affirmed by Solomon, but being rejected to follow after worship the worship of other gods, and that now has had an influence both on the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we're going to see that there is a progression forward, but not in a good way, but in a decline that would ultimately lead later on when we get to the end of these books into God punishing them and taking them into captivity to Babylon.